0: You, Mama, I
1: love you wow. 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 George Floyd wow. policing wow. reforming wow.
2: or defunding wow. how do we
1: ever build back better I can't Join host Frank Falvey and our Radio Roundtable, Higher Education Consultant Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard Health and Human Rights Executive Director Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people explore the ongoing journey of America
0: toward a more perfect union. Hello, this is your host Frank Falvey on a journey toward a more perfect union. Today, we are going to generally talk about the Massachusetts Police Reform Bill, but we're going to talk not only about the bill, but maybe some of the uh, reaction against the bill and against individuals that are supporting the bill, or maybe even reaction the other way uh, against individuals that feel uh, the bill didn't go far enough. So it will be a civil discussion, which on this topic doesn't always happen. And we want to try to set that example of covering the issues and the differences we have, but at the same time, say how this can be done in other conversations that we hope you have after this program. Our special guest this morning is Julie Hall, a graduate uh, undergraduate of the University of Maryland in Washington Park, also an MA from Washington uh, University. Do I have that right, Julie? That is correct, yes. Okay, a retired U.S. Air Force uh, colonel, uh, mainly in uh, the administration area of uh, health care for uh, veterans, uh, a former Attenborough council member, and like uh, not Lear, she was a Republican uh, candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives from this district. Uh, having said that, who would like to begin? Jeff, would you like to begin about the bill?
3: Sure. I'd love to uh, love to chat, um, and thanks for uh, taking on this topic, and thanks uh, once again to the uh, roundtable. Uh, I look forward to these uh, talks uh, every week. And, you know, specifically, last year was an incredible uh, year Uh, throughout the nation. And we had witnessed some things happening uh, in our nation that, uh, you know, were simply intolerable and led to some very important dialogues. And uh, for me as a legislator in Massachusetts, uh, the topic of uh, police reform and doing something in that area uh, was something that we made a commitment to do early on, And it was on Friday, July 24th of 2020, I remember it distinctly, that uh, I joined 92 uh, of my House colleagues, that's 92 out of 160, in voting for a bill that uh, will create a more modern, transparent, and accountable system for law enforcement in Massachusetts. 46 states in America certify police officers in Massachusetts up until December 31st of 2020 was one of four that did not do that. So, um, you know, I fully believe that this uh, certification process is going to make our policing system in Massachusetts stronger and bias-free. And, uh, you know, I could go through a host of the, th- uh, the, the, the things that are included in the bill, but I think uh, just generally focusing on uh, the certification piece is important some of the um, activities that uh, we banned is, is probably important, and the number of commissions that we established in the bill to look at issues of systemic racism I think are uh, are the highlights that uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that and we can talk about that more as we get along. The other um, important component that that particularly surprised me was the reactions. Uh, from uh, the community on learning of that bill, and so you know, we did that in July of 2020, and I can tell you from July 2020 until December 31st, when the governor finally put his signature on that bill, uh, there was incredible uh, response and reaction to the bill. That some of it I found troubling and, and I found uh, concerning. Uh, I, I recall several times being confronted by people accusing me of being anti-police and anti-public safety. And I say to you that nothing could be further from the truth. Um, And I looked at folks and I said, you know, we have a very strong police force in Franklin and in Medway, the other community that I represent. And I looked at this issue and I said, we should be spreading the Uh, police force and the talent that we have in Franklin and Medway throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And incidentally, during these discussions, the uh, Justice Department for the United States had issued a report about the Springfield Police Department and calling it one of the worst police departments in the entire United States. And that's something that came from the Trump administration. And I looked at folks who were saying to me that I was anti-police, which again, I I take real umbrage at that, uh, that remark. And I said, what we have in place here in Franklin and Medway, don't you agree that the citizens of the city of Springfield deserve what we have here? And when they look at it through that lens, I think they began to understand uh, you know what I was talking about, and and why uh, we thought that this was important. A final comment I, I would like to say is let's let's think about how we got there. And and people were saying, well, you're judging uh, Massachusetts based on an incident that happened over a thousand miles away. And I say, you know something, I didn't look at that. There were a, there was. An unjustified stop of a a black uh, university athletic director in Newton, Massachusetts, a racial profiling event in Needham, Massachusetts, Uh, the unlawful arrest and beating of a person of color in Lynn who was sitting on his porch, the state police overtime pay scandal was uh, developing, and the Department of Justice report about Springfield that I uh, was talking about earlier. But underlying all of this, Were the many reports from friends and and parents who I know uh, who have children of color who feel compelled to have the talk about driving while black? Now, that's never a conversation I have ever had with my children. And it just pulled me back. I said, I can't imagine sitting down and having a conversation like that with my children. But those are the realities uh, of where we're at and where we were at in 2020. And I look back and reflect on that particular bill and my vote on that bill. And I say, I think history is gonna look back very kindly on what we did here in Massachusetts. And I think as time goes on, people will develop an appreciation. So that's, uh, that's an outline of what we did. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation here today.
4: Okay, and uh, this is Michael uh, Walker-Jones, and not only am I really pleased that we're discussing this topic today, but you forgot one very nationally uh, prominent uh, case, too, the one with Louis Gates and the police officer in Cambridge that ended up uh, with a beer session at the White House. Uh,
3: uh, I don't know how you forgot that one. Um, well, I wasn't invited, so I said, <laughs> if I'm not invited to a beer party at the White House, I'm not going to talk about it.
4: Yeah, well, well, a lot of us felt that way, Jeff. Uh, but this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and I must admit, too, it's it's also something that I have a a, a lot of familiarity with, both uh, ex- experientially as well as academically. I taught. Uh, at uh, Curry College, uh, one of the criminal uh, justice courses. As a matter of fact, my course was the mandatory course on interpersonal communications. It probably was viewed by many of the officers as they, uh, 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 who were under my tutelage, if you will. Uh, it was viewed by them as one of those fluffy courses because when they first came into my class, very few of them took the uh, the idea that interpersonal communication was key to their job. Uh, they see themselves as authorities, um, and all all you have to do is comply. And if you comply, then everything is going to be okay. So uh, I want to get into this topic very heavily and stuff, but I want to give some of the others too an uh, an opportunity to introduce themselves and their and their relationship to it.
2: I'll jump in. This is Natalia Linas. And, uh, you know, always a pleasure to be on this panel. And on this topic, it's something I care deeply about. I'm a public health expert, as, as people know. And, you know, the data is clear that uh, people of color, especially black men, um, die at the hands of the police at much higher rates. Than, than white Americans. And and I think our conversation today has to talk about systems. It's not individuals. It's not, you know, your cousin or your father or your brother who works in the police force. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the system of policing and whether it is working for everyone in our country and whether it's working for everyone in Massachusetts. And I agree with the bill. I think it, it took us somewhere, but I'm one of those people who thinks that it could go even further to reimagine what we mean by public safety, to think about, for example, the opioid overdose crisis, to think about homelessness, to think about these issues as not requiring a police response, but a better social safety net, a better, you know, mental health response. And and whether we're asking of our police to be a bit of everything, to be in our schools, to be in our, uh, you know, in homeless shelters, like whether there are other modalities of public safety. And, you know, for those of you who have been listening to this show, you know that I grew up in a different country. I grew up in Greece where the police don't carry guns because the people also don't have guns. So gun control is not part of our conversation, but I think fatalities are because people are carrying guns. If the police had no guns, um, you know, nurses in a hospital often come into contact with people who are belligerent, who are drunk, who are angry, but we have never heard of a nurse killing someone. And it is the system more broadly. And so I'll, I'll stop there, but I think we have to reimagine a better future for public safety.
5: Okay. So I was on my city council and I did work with our local police. I'm, I'm, I guess I have a different perspective from the fact that I worked very closely with them and did did understand that in both Mansfield and in Attleboro, we had some very progressive policing going on. We had what's called a POP unit, which is a problem, problem solving policing force. So I'm very happy to say, and I know that this doesn't go on in a lot of places, but I really liked the way they did things. Um, Chief Hegney and also Chief Sellin in, in Fox, is it Mansfield? Okay, they both used this and it was a very forward looking. So I guess that's, I was introduced to that kind of policing, which was again, very, very different. So I didn't see a lot of what went on with the rest of Massachusetts. So I was very, very happy. And they introduced me to that. And one of the things that they said is that they would have liked to have more money to bring on social workers and caseworkers. And they constantly asked our city council for more money. And I fully understood what they were looking for. They wanted caseworkers as part of their team. And, you know, they explained the resource officers. I, at being part of the city council, went to the DEAR graduations all the time and talked to the resource officers. Those resource officers that were in those schools were so important to those those kids and those resource officers told me that those children that were going to school told them things about that were going on in families that were probably they would never have told other people and and and, and other and how important those those resource officers were so I, like i said i think i i guess i saw a different perspective so i think there were some good things going on in massachusetts that probably weren't going on in other parts of the country um, now, does that happen everywhere? I also can say I was in an organization um, that was predominantly white male. And I can also understand where that getting along to get along, not telling on your fellow person. Um, I, I understand that culture. It's a, it's a horrible culture. So I know where that, that comes from. You know, so I, I understand how those things go, go along. And, and I think, you know, definitely things needed to be done. One of the things I did want to say about the certification process and licensing, I think that's excellent. One of the things that the police also con- complained about was the fact of getting training here in Massachusetts was horrible. There was no funding for training. They complained about this constantly. So I think the certification process and the licensing process is, is exceptional. One of the things we did in the hospital, though, I do have to pass on. I don't think having a civilian process is the right thing to do. We had what's called a peer process. So their peers and experts in their own fields, and I know there's some skepticism about that, would probably be a better way and to, peer, and to peer them up with an expert who can help them rehab, if you would. But we did have a peer process in the medical field. That might be a better way of doing it. I don't know, but, um, I do like the certification process. I like the licensing process. I think that's exceptional and I'll leave that at that. So my, my good comments, my bad comments. And
4: well, I want to take it though, uh, uh back to Jeff and say that I don't think the bill went number one. I don't think the bill went far enough in some areas as it should have Jeff uh, and let me give you two examples of some infrastructure that was already there that wasn't taken advantage of. One, there's the bill uh, that has been passed many, many years ago. Uh, and again, forgive me, I'm not familiar enough with it at this point to know if it's still in existence, which was the bill that if you as a police officer went and got your associate's degree, you'd get a raise. If you got your BA degree, you get a raise. If you got your master's degree, you get a raise. And these were permanent raises, I think, at each step of about 5%. So when the officers say, well, we don't have money enough for, for training, uh, that's not totally accurate because many of them would find themselves Uh, at the university, uh, you know, trying to seek these increases. However, many of them had the attitude, however, that all I've got to do is go and sit at the university in terms of seat time. This is not really important. This is just a way for me to get a raise. And some of them made what I would call a scam of it. Uh, And the, uh, uh, the bill could have taken advantage of, okay, let's include in the licensure the requirement that as you get these uh, that as you get these uh, degrees, that that becomes part of the licensure process. In other words, you could have various stages and levels similar to what teachers have. I agree with uh, with Julie that with respect to the oversight, that one of the first things that ought to happen is an internal oversight board. Uh, we've been yelling and hollering and screaming about this in the teaching profession for years. And yet the legislature still hasn't seen, uh, you know, uh, seen it uh, appropriate to establish a teacher review board when it comes to both discipline as well as licensure for teachers. Uh, But yet when it comes to police, you know, then everyone wants to, you, you know, sort of look at their needs and their concerns more so than other professions. I don't think that that's fair either. The other aspect too that i I'm really concerned about, which is the aspect of, uh, of the racial tinge, if you will, around this. Those of us in the black community know full well that there has been a tension with, with regard to public, uh, public uh, safety since the f- slaves were freed in 1865. It has not gone away. And as a matter of fact, it's gotten to the point where I think it's now reared its ugly head in some of the worst ways. Uh, And I think the insurgency on the six is a great example of that, because those folks who were in many instances, white supremacists, okay, some of whom were police, some of whom were elected officials, were treated totally different um, than if they were, let's say, the Black Lives Movement. So I think there you know and again i will also admit jeff that part of what happens in legislation is you don't get everything you want right up front i get that and so i think Uh, Rather than criticize that the bill didn't go far enough, let me back up and say there's still room for growth and improvement with regard to the bill. And I hope that the legislature continues to look at this issue, as well as others, uh, that are important that as we move toward, I think, a better structure uh, in terms of equality, uh, that there are some things and stuff that need to be addressed,
3: uh, not just in policing, uh, but in all sides thus a more perfect union great uh, great comments and uh, and great uh, concerns uh, i emphasized at the beginning of re- my remarks that i joined 92 of my colleagues in passing this bill 92 out of 160 and i did that for a reason because that should show you just how close and contentious this debate was on the floor of the House. We were 12 votes away from having this bill defeated. So we took some enormous steps to move us forward in Massachusetts, fully understanding that we still had uh, a long way to go. With regard to the, the licensing issue uh, and, and teaching, for example, teachers have been required to be licensed in Massachusetts and there's a whole process that they need to go through. Um, we did not have a similar process for licensing of uh, police and certification. And, uh, you know, that creates a, um, a new process that I think is going to be a, a monumental uh, way to effectuate change. Uh, and, Uh, I am not familiar with uh, what you were talking about in terms of the review board for the teachers. So that's probably a conversation we can have uh, offline. I'd love to engage with you on that. And um, finally, going back to uh, Julie's comments about uh, Attleboro and Mansfield. And and that's a perfect example of, you know, we do have pockets of very great policing going on and, and progressive steps being taken. But that goes back again to my comment, don't you agree with me that we should be doing this in all 351 communities through the Commonwealth? And I think everybody universally agrees that they would like to see this statewide. Uh, Part of my education and experience uh, on this bill uh, was spending a day uh, at the State Police Academy and uh, going through uh, a portion of the training uh, that our state police officers go through and hearing from uh, officers who uh, are on the street, uh, in the classrooms, and some of the, uh, the administrators who uh, are teaching these officers. That was a, a really eye-opening experience for me to uh, actually participate in some of the classroom and physical training. Uh, that police officers undergo, I did learn that uh, I am far beyond the age that uh, I am no longer eligible to be a state police officer in Massachusetts, so you 'll stay safe uh, in knowing that uh, you will not see me in one of those uh, one of those cruises anytime soon. but um, you know I learned uh, about split second decision making uh, I learned about making mistakes. I learned about uh, how they incorporate the legal decisions and statutes in their uh, classroom training. It was extraordinary. And that's the training that our state police officers get to go through. And I left there saying, oh, every single police officer in every single community should have the benefit of a training program like this. And part of the bill does uh, provide uh, additional funding uh, to do this. I did hear from the marijuana community saying, "Why are you taking our marijuana money to train our police officers?" I I, I said, "Look, it, I said we need these programs, and that's the the uh, policy decision that we made as a legislature, and I stand behind it fully and wholly." So, uh,
2: but so again, let me let me jump in, Jeff, because sure. uh, and this is Natalia. I think you know the. One of the challenges is, do we want to make marginal improvements to our system or do we think that the system may have fundamental flaws? And therefore, you know, like Julie said, you know, we, the police was asking for more money to get more social workers, to get more resources but a lot of people, especially on, on, you know, the younger folks who are calling for defunding the police, are saying the system is broken. Pouring more money into it and making incremental changes that makes your police slightly safer doesn't fundamentally change the structures that the root causes of, you know, the inequities that. Michael was talking about, or, you know, those who are in the disability community talk about the risk that people with, you know, mental health challenges, you know, they are more likely to be having a crisis moment and be killed at the hands of the police. Like, is there a way to not pour more money to make incremental change, but to reimagine something completely different, to reimagine a civilian response force? You know, in Oregon, the CAHOOTS team, like there are good examples of completely different models. And why are we getting stuck in reinforcing and, um, you know, p- pouring more money into a model that has so many fundamental flaws. So Look, I- Change,
3: change does, it, it, it's, it's incremental change. You're not going to uh, have a wholesale change of a system. Part of the, um, Part of the legislation was the establishment of approximately 10 commissions to study and make recommendations for further changes. Uh, we were not going to make a wholesale systemic change in the matter of six months looking at a problem. I, for one, uh, and I'll give you a perfect example, we were called upon to eliminate qualified immunity in, in Massachusetts law. I was not a fan of removing qualified immunity. And I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that you would object to that. But here's how I look at it: qualified immunity is a legal uh, concept that has been developed in case law over the course of 50 years. I didn't think it was wise for us to take a six-month time period and make wholesale changes to the qualified immunity plan without taking a deep look at what qualified immunity does, why it came into being, and let's have a commission established to have subject matter experts review it and make recommendations as to what we should do. So I filed that amendment to form that particular commission uh, and, you know, folks quarreled and said, you're not doing enough. Well, here's another way to look at the qualified immunity. If we eliminated qualified immunity under Massachusetts law, That would have absolutely no impact on what happens in our federal courts. And most of our police disputes uh, and civil rights claims are handled in the federal courts. And the federal system has its own uh, rules for qualified immunity. So we may have made some change at the state level where not many of these issues are addressed in our state courts which would have had no impact at what happens at the federal level. So folks weren't really considering what were the ramifications of eliminating qualified immunity uh, in Massachusetts. There are a host of steps uh, that are out there that we uh, really need to look at. And I concluded and uh, thus filed an amendment calling for a commission to study and make recommendations, And a number of issues that have arisen in the context of the police reform debate called for other commissions to study other issues and make yet further recommendations. So, uh, change comes slowly. Um, but I'm not necessarily, uh, Well, Jeff, opposed. I want to push. Yeah, but I want to push back on that.
4: Uh, y- you know, because I think that's a, uh, you know, that's one of those selective arguments. It comes slowly in the areas where the system wants it to be slow. Uh, let's take education reform. Uh, when, uh, uh, when the good uh, representative from Worcester, I forget his name, uh, back in 1993 came up with his ed reform bill, it was comprehensive. I mean, to the tell you know, to the tune of really changing the entire structure of K 12 education in, in Massachusetts. Teachers fought against it, and you know, but but. My point is that the bill itself was extremely comprehensive. The system, and, and in some states, as a matter of fact, I worked, uh, I had the privilege of working in Louisiana, where in one session of the legislature, they entirely rewrote the education law to the point where teachers who had had uh, up to that point due process, the due process procedure in the law was taken out Which would, you know, it's not equivalent to uh, the immunity clauses, both at the state and the national level. But for teachers, it is absolutely one of the clear aspects of their job because curriculum is controlled by the school board. But it's the one aspect in terms of due process that at least gives them an opportunity to defend themselves if they're brought up on whatever it may be, whether it's charges of incompetence or whether it's charges of abuse or neglect or whatever it may be. The legislature in Louisiana and in other states, I'm only using that as an example because I was there, completely rewrote it. So this argument that, well, it comes slowly is one that is selective. So, the question, and I agree with that. Keep deleted. in mind,
3: Michael, 92 votes. We were 12 votes a, away <laughs> from doing nothing. And you uh, cannot uh, overlook that. And uh, well, no, the other look, thing I want to you, it. <laughs> suggest. I'm not overlooking this. But let me suggest this to you. Why did we do Ed Reform in 1994? We did it because we, we realized there was an achievement gap and we needed to break that achievement yes. gap. Let's look yes. at it now. Uh, how many years later, 26 years later, how have we done on the achievement gap?
4: We've done, we've done uh, moderately well, moderately Moderately well, well. moderately Uh, well. We
3: have not. uh, We can do a lot better. We can
4: do uh, a whole lot better. Yes.
3: Yes. Yes. So, you know, I would say that even though that was a massive restructuring (laughs) of education, it's still incremental change. And well, it cost a, a boatload of money because it's about five billion dollars from the uh, state budget that uh, we pay uh, on education, which uh, we didn't pay uh, back in 1994. But so the it's overall money and it's okay, change. But the overall federalism.
4: system. But. But the overall system though has benefited. Massachusetts is one of number, first off, it's the number one K-12 education system in the entire United States at this Without point.
3: Without question.
4: Absolutely. It is, I think, fifth in the world in terms of being a system.
3: So it's actually, right. actually first in the world in several areas. Yes. Yes. Yes.
0: Reading
4: we, and math in particular.
0: Can we go back to police? And <laughs> can I can I interject? Uh, as a nuts and bolts guy, why is this appointment of the commissioners still a political process that the governor, the Senate president, and the House Speaker get to submit the names of people they want as the three commissioners? Jeff, I don't understand the four paragraphs about uh, videoing, about facial recognition. Can you explain what that debate is all about? And in the Bill Jeff, there is one exception to uh, uh, identify, uh, identification of the police officers, and that one sentence is very, very vague as to uh, the exception of how a police officer can be charged. Um, that one sentence doesn't, to me, doesn't make sense.
3: Well, let me try to pick it uh, uh, as clearly as I can. The commissions themselves, each of the commissions that established uh, under the bill have lists of members who would appear on that commission, and uh, the speaker and the Senate president and the governor only pick a portion of those committee members.
0: There's only Uh, three of them, Jeff. No, they,
3: they, they, they do not the make Hispanic. all the
0: picks. The Hispanic has 21.
3: Right, but they're not picking all of those people.
0: Right, they're submitting names. Why are they the no, ones no, submitting the names?
3: They're submitting names in some contexts. In, in other contexts, the organization that needs to be represented at the table is selecting the person to appear at the table. There are some Only that, in
0: one, only in the African-American one. Uh,
3: well, I, I and
0: what happened to Asians this morning on TV? They were talking about a older Asians being ab- abused because of the coronavirus. You don't have an Asian commission. You have what? As a matter of fact, that commission. was
3: actually debated by one of the representatives, and and we did act. We did add uh, a uh, representation from the Asian community on on at least one of the commissions so that issue actually was debated on the on the house floor uh so that's selection of the commissions and it's and it's each of the commissions has a process established and and i can assure you that it's not just the uh, speaker the senate president and the governor making these selections it's it's across the board uh in terms of the facial recognition uh initially uh it was going to be an outright ban on facial recognition, but even the attorney general uh, weighed in on that and the governor objected to the elimination of facial recognition and saying, there are some very good uses to that and uh, we would like you to uh, preserve that. And uh, once again, a, a commission was established to study and make further recommendations on the facial recognition aspect. So uh, I think you're gonna see more to come Uh, on that particular issue. Uh, And in terms of how officers can be charged, um, I want you to understand that one of the things was the establishment of a uh, certification commission that will establish policies and procedures for how all that will be rolled out. And uh, that's subject to further development uh, as uh, that commission gets appointed. And that, as that commission deliberates and does its work, um, one of the uh, things that we were called upon to do is to make sure that we maintained due process for officers charged with offenses. So that's an important piece of uh, that particular bill. I hope that answered your questions, but uh, you know, there's a lot to this uh, particular bill, and uh, I'm glad to see that you went through, is it, is it like 85 pages or may may have been, may even be longer, um, but there's a lot to it and, uh, you know, a lot to absorb and digest.
4: You know, I'd like to go back to something that Julie said earlier, which is the idea that there are some really great community uh, policing uh, uh, experiments going on across the Commonwealth. And um And Julie, uh, uh, describe a little more for how, uh, uh, describe for us a little more how your uh, Mansfield and Attleboro are approaching, sort of looking at different aspects of policing from the uh, social science aspect of it.
5: Sure. Um, Well, one of the things that they do is they, well, they call it the tip of the spear. So they go out and they have people from the very beginning. So if they Come upon someone, they don't immediately, you know, put that person and say, let's let's just go to jail and let's just call this person a, a criminal. They try to work with that person right off the bat and find out why, you know, why are they having problems? Um, I can tell you one of the things, and I'm going to say this: the opioid crisis, in particular, we brought in a team um, from uh, Brookline, uh, Column Health and brought them into Sturdy. I actually went out and found them. I saw something in the paper that they, they bragged to be uh, to have the best results. So I said, come to Attleboro. And now they are integrated with Sturdy Hospital. And so when people come into the emergency room, we're able to call them right into the emergency room. And so one of the biggest things that happens with people that have an opioid problem is they go into the emergency room, we bring them back to life, <laughs> and then they say we say come back and they say okay and we never see them again so what happens is they're immediately brought in with a a counselor that night two things happens the emergency room doctors don't have to deal with them directly because they have other patients so it helps out in two different ways and then they are, are actually um, brought in and peered up with somebody right from the beginning so they work with sturdy works with police, they work with the uh, counselors. It's a community effort right off the the bat. It's the same thing when we have sometimes homeless people are brought in by the police. Homeless people are not, they're not um, bad people, but yet a homeless person is oftentimes brought in and put into the the system because what are you going to do with them? And oftentimes they're treated like criminals. They should not be treated like criminals. They should be brought um, to a homeless shelter. Our police department brings them to a homeless shelter. So it's it's things like that. And then instead of just bringing them to a homeless shelter, our police department identifies them to counselors. They go the extra effort. And, and why? Because they have the time, because they have the resources to do that. Oftentimes, other police departments don't have those resources. They aren't connected to those resources. So what do they do? They put them in jail. So it, it's things of that sort. If you have a community effort that goes on like that, and you have those people working together, it makes a huge difference to do that. Um, the other thing that I I did is I actually sent over to Chief Hegney because we have that kind of relationship. Something I've been looking at, um, and it's called evidence-based policing, where you can start using data and outcomes, and so. You look at somebody like Chief Hagney or Chief Sellin, they're very interested in those things, very open. I got a response back that all the time that says, thank you very much, I really appreciate that. So they're very open to those kinds of things. Uh, They're they're very open to hearing more about those. So these are progressive guys that, I think they both have their master's degrees also. So they're very open to that kind of wanting to know more about these kinds of things. So um, I I guess that's the best way to, to put it is that, they're, I think they meet on a regular basis too. They meet with the community. There's community groups that go on. That's very important they have, that they meet ongoing with different people within the community that, that have these resources. I think that's that's the most important thing. when you talk about community reimagining community working together, I think that's the first step.
1: Julie, you've touched on some interesting points both earlier and now that I think I want to flesh out a little bit. Uh, first of all uh, there were in your early comments there were several good suggestions going in several different vectors and to put all that in one bucket one of the things i think we need to realize is that in the fullness of time the police department has sort of become this catch all a solution for every societal ill that and so having a apparently monolithic police department that is expected to be all things to all people is a serious challenge. And so uh, I'm going to kind of back up to go forward here. I thought that the phrase uh, defund the police was a little off point uh, in that it, it raised hackles. It was extremely polarizing as opposed to reform the police or some other or expand the, whatever, but something that would put the, the whole discussion about the police onto a better vector like the one we're having now. That said, another point I'd like to make, and, and I've said this with respect to other topics, and boy, this is the truth, to Jeff's point, um, and others have made it as well as you, Julie, that we enjoy what I will call just absolutely excellent police support uh, in our local communities here in Franklin and Medway and so on, and I personally have had great experiences, um, so I'm a big fan. And as you pointed out, there are issues in Springfield, uh, there are issues in other communities that we can name. So, how do we create a more uniform experience across all communities? And um, as I've said before, part of it is that every organization, every business, every charitable organization, every societal structure, takes its cue from the person at the top, whoever that person is. And so that points to the police chief. Imagine the kind of reform we might achieve working with the National Police Chiefs Association to try to provide some uniformity in terms of qualification, hiring practices, uh, all of that. If every single police chief, the person who is closest to any commission That we were talking about, if that police chief was really highly qualified in a high bar, really uniformly vetted by some national standards, and worked with the association to accomplish that, we would see some of the unevenness start to vaporize. We would see uh, police organizations held To more similar standards, community to community, community. So I think that that's an, I don't want to call it an easy entry point to solving the problem, but I think it's an intriguing entry point to solving the problem where you, where you can go in and affect probably considerable and lasting change by touching a very specific and highly identified community of police workers, the guys who have to deal with their crew.
2: PJ, my problem there is that, you know, you and I and Jeff have had good experiences with the police, but not to put you on the spot, Michael, but you spoke about, you know, your encounter at 14. I mean, we are not the best people to judge whether the police is working for everyone. And maybe these interventions that we're suggesting, improving, you know, the hiring and the licensure will make the police work better for people that look like me and you, but we can't, Ignore the fact that our country has a problem with racism and that is not unique to the police It's our country's problem and therefore how that plays out is a very very differential experience And because the police carry guns, that is deadly And Michael, I'm going to put you on the spot to share the story you shared in another episode Because for me that's really important for our audience to hear if, if that's okay with you
4: Yeah, it, it, it goes back to something at 14 when I had a uh, policeman pull a gun on me uh, while I was standing on a street corner during, uh, the Kentucky Derby day, uh, festival, uh, and cause I grew up three blocks from the racetrack and I would, uh, inevitably every Derby day, try to, uh, uh, try to park cars in my grandmother's backyard, uh, just to earn money. Uh, and you, you know, it was a, uh, At the time, I did not recognize how traumatic the experience was because it was so pervasive in our community that these things can happen to you. And that talk that parents had with, you know, with uh, uh, with their black sons and daughters about how to deal with the police. Uh, We had had that talk, uh, but my hackles were up at that point. I'm standing on a sidewalk thinking that I'm a, you know, i 'm a citizen like everybody else here, and this cop who 's directing traffic is telling me to move along on the sidewalk, and all i 'm trying to do is get people to park in my backyard uh, you know and so my cousin and I he comes over and stuff all right, gives us an order to uh, uh, to move along. We tell him, hey, all we 're trying to do is get cars to park in our yard <clears throat> and he didn 't like it that we didn't comply immediately, and so he pulls his gut uh, he pulls his gun out because we gave him lip. Uh, and that's, you know, and so that was at 14, but let me give you an experience right here in Franklin. I'm driving down, uh, uh, down, uh, uh one of our roads, uh, past, uh, uh, uh the middle school, uh, uh, I forget the name of the school, uh, where my daughters went, but that's a function of age. Uh, and, and, uh, and a policeman, uh, you know, turns his lights on, pulls, uh, uh, pulls me over. And uh, as he does this, uh, I open my door, get out of the car. I'm dressed in a three-piece suit with a, uh, uh, with a nice tie. I've got a fairly nice-looking car. Um, and as I'm getting out of the car, he opens his door and literally tells me, <laughs> as he puts his hand on his gun, get back in the car. Get back in the car. Get back in the car. Now, this is in Franklin. So I, I go back to my car. I get in the car. I roll my window down, and now I'm going into uh, training mode, training from my grandparents, my parents, because I put my hands outside of the window when I roll it down, both of my hands so he could see them as he's approaching the car. That's part of the talk. And as he gets up to the car, and he says to me, as he's standing in his protective mode, So he's sideways on the side of the car and he's talking to me with his hand on his gun. He says, why did you get out of the car? I said, cause you know, you stopped me. I don't know why and stuff. I wanted to come back and just, you you know, say hello and talk to you. You should never get out of the car, never get out of the car. The guy, I said, Hey man, calm down, (laughs) calm down, buddy. Okay. Now this ended up well for both of us because I asked him point, point blank, are you okay? And the guy was honest. And he says, no, I'm a little bit shook right now. Now, why was that? Because here's a black guy driving while black in Franklin. Once I gave him my license and he discovered that I was a Franklin resident. And not only that, but I asked, you know, he asked me and stuff, how long you've been here? And I said, well, I've been here for quite a while. I said, I'm the guy who does the 4th uh, of July thing. So I had a lot of references Uh, plus I knew the police chief, because I'm trying to de-escalate the situation. By the way, Jeff, that's one of the pieces in the bill that I do like, you know, (laughs) it's the de-escalation piece in there, all right? So I'm acting this out because of my training and because of my academic training in terms of trying to de-escalate the situation, because I can see this young man is extremely nervous. You're absolutely right, Natalia. You know, there's a lot of perspective, folks, That when you're putting together a bill, you're looking at police behavior, and that's what the bill is trying to address. You're not looking at the systemic problem, which is, I think, what Julie is trying to, at least in my mind, trying to describe. uh, Because in 1970, I was asked to join the uh, Rochester Police Department. Why? Because they were starting a program called the Family and Crisis Intervention Team. They called it FACET where they wanted community members, especially well-trained both in social work, psychology, etc., and I happen to be a psychology major, to be a part of a unit team. Three people who would be in a car all the time with special responsibilities to respond to family crisis or family um, uh, disputes kinds of calls. Now, that kind of reimagining of the police is something that I think, again, legislation needs to look at systemic change, not just at behavioral change. And I think that's one of the areas that I think, Natalia, you and Julie and stuff are making an extremely great point of. And I think Jeff has a wonderful opportunity to start to look at the evolution of where this particular law is going to go.
2: Can I jump in with a story? about white privilege and the police, I think it's important to also tell these, I was carrying a baby, this is in New York City, and there was police there to catch the people who were jumping over the turnstiles, right? They were there for that purpose, to give fines. I'm carrying a baby and the policemen there Opens the door and says, "Please don't worry to find your pass because he thought it would be difficult for me to get my pass." So he's there to stop people from breaking the law, and sees a young woman carrying a baby, and this is gender and race. And he opens the door and lets me do exactly what he was there to stop. And part of me was like, "Thank you," and then I was like, "What is going on here? How is this person who is here giving fines to the young black and that next youth?" opening the door to let me do exactly why he is there. And it it is my gender, it is my race, and I think acknowledging that is important. My experience, of course, was very positive. I was like, thank you so much. So I wanted to add that. But on the point on defunding the police, PJ, and, and the language, it goes to Michael's point. So we have these partnerships, and in New York City, I was part of the New York City Health Department doing a big partnership with the police department on opioid overdose and it was big it was you know the mayor put a ton of money behind this to try and reimagine and, and think better about creatively but let me tell you 80% of the budget went to the police 20% to the health department on a public health initiative it was called a public health response to the opioid crisis and only 20% went to the health department that is a problem and when people say defund the police they don't mean you know take away money they mean share it according to what you're trying to get. If this is a social service, if this is an intervention on mental health, put the money into the mental health piece under a more civilian workforce. Because the problem is that if you are a person of color who has a history of distrust and you are in crisis, you might not call the police. So all those services that are being funneled through the police are disproportionately benefiting uh, white you know community members who don't double you know who are not worried to call to get those extra supports so thinking where those social service monies are housed makes a difference as to who can access them
1: i agree and, and my point is the phrase defund the police is just unfortunately too thin because it says we're going to take something I away agree. from people who have to do everything and i don't have the better phrase because reform the police police is also incomplete But I was trying to get to your point exactly. If you're going to create a catch-all, that catch-all has to have a multiplicity of tools to do the job, including people who are experts in social psychology, people who can help families in crisis, people who are, in fact, not police, but they are very strong adjuncts to what has been this monolithic police role. Uh, And I think that because society has become more complex, and people always dial that one singular number to solve every single societal ill, how is it that we filter all of that quickly and get the right resources connected to the problems, you know, on a day-by-day basis?
0: Well, with that, I think we need to uh, wind up uh, the program, and I want to thank the panel, and I want to thank our special guest, uh, Julie Hall. Uh, This is uh, Frank Valvey. Uh, for the journey toward a more perfect union. And if you'd like to comment on our
1: program today, we'd love to hear from you at info, I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. I'm Peter J. and for Frank Falvey, Julie Hall, and our panel today, thanks for listening. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Franklin Public Radio.